You're listening to the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. If you'd like to learn more or check out our resources, please visit nifw.org. I keep hoping my students will do that someday when I walk in the room, but it's never happened. So sometimes they clap the last day. I'm not sure what that means. So um, I appreciate you being here and, and, and always get a little bit um, humbled by those kinds of, of words. Uh, I appreciate that nice introduction. Um, so I need to kind of take you back in time, uh, a, a, a short period of time and then a long period of time to tell you the story. Um, and, and I'm going to go back, um, my goodness, like it's not that short, I guess. It was about 20 years ago. About 20 years ago, I started teaching at a university up in Minnesota called University of St. Thomas. Uh, it's a Catholic university. Um, my wife claims I'm working my way through the various denominations throughout my career. And so, um, and so at this Catholic university, I connected with this guy by the name of Mike Naughton. Uh, Michael Naughton is, is a, a, a pretty big deal in terms of the integration of, of faith and work. And uh, he's uh, written lots of books and, and articles and speaks around the world and, and, and it's a pretty big deal. And he, he and I struck up a friendship. And, and uh, one night when we were at a, a, a retreat on integrating faith into teaching business, um, I kind of challenged him to help me understand how we could do a better job of integrating all the theology into how we teach entrepreneurship, and he took me up on that. And so out of that came about a year-long project to develop a course. And so the two of us developed this senior capstone course for entrepreneurship students that was team-taught by this Catholic theologian and me. And, and my ignorance of theology um, was, was, was only a little less than his ignorance of entrepreneurship. And so it was a really interesting process for us to really explore each other's worlds. You know, I've always been a, certainly a person of faith, but I'm not a theologian. And, and to sit down with a PhD from Notre Dame, who uh, is probably one of the smartest guys I've ever worked with, was intimidating at times. But it was, he was a guy who was really good at sort of the practical approach to this. So we developed the course, we developed a book, we developed uh, lots of articles, we did a lot of speaking nationally on this, and, and uh, one of the things we tried to do is to make this topic approachable. Make it something that people could kind of keep in their mind, especially entrepreneurs, because having been one for half my life, I can tell you that um, our attention span is sometimes kind of limited. And so having a, a clear, simple model that would allow us to, to communicate the essence of what we wanted to think about was important. And, and we finally settled in on, on the cardinal virtues. And so um, uh, that to us seemed like a very simple model of four basic constructs that if, if they could kind of get that right and integrate that part of their faith into how they start, grow, and build companies, that we helped them a little along the way. And of course, as, as I'm really diving in and getting deeper into these things, um, I was learning just, just a few days ahead of the students sometimes in some of these things. And, and so I was going back and reflecting on my own career as an entrepreneur. 
Um, I've done a lot of deals over the years. My biggest single uh, set of deals was a, was a series of healthcare companies we started in North Carolina. And, and so I was, every time we talk about some of these, these issues, I'd, I'd reflect back and do a little self-assessment to see how I did on that. And, you know, one of them was, was uh, one of the hinge virtues, the cardinal virtues is, is courage. And, and it's, certainly it's courageous to be an entrepreneur, but it's, it's a courage that we're talking about that's the courage to do the right thing, even as hard as it is to be an entrepreneur. And, and, and I thought I did okay with that. Um, justice was the next one that we covered. And, and, and uh, certainly with, with, uh, with justice, um, I felt we ran a good company. Um, we, we, we gave a lot of ownership to a lot of our employees. Um, we distributed a lot of profits to our employees. Uh, we had a no layoff policy to, to, to ensure that uh, it was a big problem in healthcare at that time as, as it became over more of a corporate kind of a world that nursing staff and other staff were, were laid off and rehired you know, almost weekly based on census. And we said we would never do that. We wanted people to be able to count on a paycheck. So I felt pretty good about that one as well. Prudence was the next one we covered, and, and, and prudence is, is uh, sometimes it's called wisdom, sometimes it's called stewardship. Um, I, I reflected back on that. I, I remember the day when, when, I got my, when we got our first big equity investment from an angel, and I remember him writing that million-dollar check, and I'll never forget how humbled and how frightened I was to walk out with that check thinking, what kind of responsibility I had to that guy. So I thought, okay, I think I did okay on that one. And then we got to temperance. And, and, and temperance, you know, moderation is, is sometimes what, what temperance is talking about. But it's, it's, a, it's a much deeper topic than that because temperance is, is, is basically fighting the urges we all have as humans. Uh, the urges to, to overindulge to eat too much, to drink too much, to do all kinds of things too much. And for me, it was work too much. And, and so um, that was one that I really struggled with. And I, and I really had a hard time um, looking back on that because it was such a difficult aspect of my career as an entrepreneur. So I want to tell you a little bit about, about why I, I flunked the exam when it came to temperance in my life. Um, so I was a healthcare entrepreneur. And I was, I was raised um, during a time, uh, I went to, to business school in the 70s. And in the 1970s, uh, business schools said you have two purposes in life as a business person. Maximize shareholder wealth and maximize market share. That's it. And that was drilled into us in every course. And it was drilled into me by my father, who was one of my mentors. He was a very aggressive, hard-driven businessman himself and, and played a big part of my life. And so I approached the healthcare world with that kind of zeal. And, and I went at it, and I, I entered into the, the industry at a time in the 1980s when managed care was first starting to happen. And so there was tremendous turmoil in the industry, which for a guy like me as an entrepreneur is perfect. 
the, the soil's all loosened up. Every, all the, the existing players are knocked on their heels. They don't know what to do. And it allows for people like me to come in and say, we'll show you. We're going to innovate and do things you never thought of. And that's what we did. And along the way, that led to an incredible opportunity to grow very, very quickly. We grew um, from uh, 17 employees to 175 employees in 15 months. We grew from 175 employees to 350 in another 12 months. And, and I'm, I'm looking at Kevin right now, and Kevin's scowling, because that's the same look that my banker always gave me when he saw that. He's going, what are you doing? You know, it's a scary thing for bankers. They're going, you know, and I'm, I'm going, no, this is great. This is what we're supposed to do, right? And so we grew, and we grew rapidly. We grew very fast. Um, and, and, and quite honestly, I became that guy who was absent in every other way. Absent certainly with my friends, certainly with, with um, any kind of social life, but, but most importantly, absent with my family. Um, as was mentioned, I have a, a wife. And you know the end of the story. We've been married 40 years, so uh, she kept me. Um, and, and we have two children. And so um, I was building this, this company at a time when our kids were uh, elementary going into middle school age. They're, uh, they're grown up and in their 30s now, uh, well into their 30s. So uh, this is a while back. And uh, I, I was that guy. We grew so fast. And, and any of you who've grown or been in companies that have grown rapidly, there's all the, the problems that happen with that. And so I can't even count the numbers of nights that I slept on the couch in, in my office. And, and we entrepreneurs like to wear that as a badge of honor. And quite honestly, I'm sure there was a time when I did the same thing. And, and we'd talk, talk about how many hours we worked. My wife actually added them up for me along the way. And there were many weeks where it was over 100 hours that I was working. And of course, as an entrepreneur, I was proud of that. That's what we're supposed to do. We're building a company. So as we started to grow this business, we reached a point in time when, and, and those of you who are entrepreneurs or, or working in kind of changing kind of industries, you know, the, the, the change that brings you to the dance sometimes becomes your worst enemy because as you grow and become more entrenched and more solidified in an industry, that change can challenge your company. And we started to see that although we were the darling of the industry for the first several years, um, the industry was continuing to change, and we were now becoming part of the problem in the view of managed care. They had get, taken all the costs they could out of the hospitals, and so now they were looking at companies like ours, which was the next level down from a hospital, and, and starting to wring the costs out of us. So we decided it was time to sell. We decided it was time to do an exit. So this is about 10 years into the business. So we started on the process of an exit. And, and uh, I don't know if any of you have been through an exit before, but I had not uh, of this scale. And I had no idea that I was about to add one really full-time job onto another really full-time job. Because not only do you still have to keep running your company and keep the momentum there, because you don't know if this closing is going to work, but now you have to manage this closing. And, and as much as you'd like to say handle it to the lawyers, most of the decision-making comes to you. So, so this lay, added another layer onto that. The other thing about closings and, and exits is, is they're never an easy straight path. 
and ours was uh, kind of the typical nightmare. We had uh, two aborted closings, uh, both of which were within about a week or two of, of, of closing the deal. And each time that happens, you have to back up and, and get back into due diligence again because things happen. And, and, and it, actually, uh, it actually ended up being we sold to a different entity, which was actually one of our joint venture partners, which is long and complicated, but it just made for a nightmare of, of closings. So uh, along the way, and, and I think it was somewhere around the second aborted closing, um, I had a, a strange thing happen to me. I lost vision in about this much of my right eye. Couldn't see. Just like this blind spot right here. And, and I did what every good entrepreneur does. Uh, I ignored it. I thought, well, this is a yeah, wow, big deal. Come on, I got another eye. It's going to be fine. We got to get this thing closed and move on. So I just kept marching on. I kept going, kept going. And, and it didn't go away. In fact, it got so bad that my wife started to have to drive me places because particularly at night, uh, I was kind of dangerous to be on the road. And, and so um, she finally convinced me that I should probably get this checked out. So I, I went to my, my ophthalmologist. And, and my ophthalmologist, because I figured it's an eye thing, and, and he ran all these tests and looked at this and you know probed and did all this kind of stuff that they do. And, he goes, nah, nothing structurally wrong with your eye. I went, great, okay, back to work, uh, all done, no problem. And he goes, no, 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 I think there's something worse going on here. He said, I'm worried that what you have is early stage of MS. And, and that was kind of one of those moments where, you know, you just, everything is drained out of you. I'm going, oh my God, I, that, not me. So um, at that point in time, I think it's gotten a little bit simpler now, but at that point in time, this is 20-some years ago, uh, it, that required a series of tests. And so I was, uh, I was going in and out of the hospital, different doctors, trying to figure out what was going on. Finally go back, and, and they get all the results, and they sit me down. They say, well, good news, you don't have MS. I went, okay, great, back to work. Still couldn't see out of my right eye. And he said... He said, let me ask you something. He said, do you have any stress in your life? I said, no, 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 not at all. He said, well, you may want to kind of deal with stress in your life right now. I said, well, why? He said, because we're pretty sure what you had was a small stroke. And he said, I'll almost guarantee you that you'll have more of those if you don't change a lot about your lifestyle, particularly stress and, and work hours and things like that. And, and he said, so you need to get all the stress out of your life. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I have absolutely no control over my life right now. I own this company with hundreds of employees. We're trying to exit. We're about to have our second aborted closing. And, and somehow I gotta, I, I'm in control to get this out of my life. Yeah, right. That's going to happen. So um, I, I, I just trudged ahead. I had to. I had to keep moving ahead. I didn't tell anybody about this. My wife was the only person who knew. And, and so we continued ahead. And, and finally we got to, um, to closing. And, you know, so I show up at, at 4 o'clock in the morning 
in, in the in the parking lot because I hadn't slept all night, uh, and and I'm sitting there and I you know couldn't see, drove myself, shouldn't have done that, and and the security guard comes over and he knocks on the window and he said, uh, excuse me sir, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I got a closing today. He said, oh, which attorneys are you working with? And I told him, he goes, oh yeah, this happens about every couple of weeks we get one of you here. He said, just hang tight. He said they usually get in early, and so I said okay. So. We finally, and actually fairly early, the attorney who I was working with showed up, and, and he rapped on my window. He says, come on, we're going to go clean you up and get you some coffee and get you ready, because today's closing day. And he said, now, we're on a tight time frame, because we've got to get this done. We had a 90-day window to close this deal. It was very complicated. This was, was sort of a hostile, it was a hostile acquisition but the terms were, were favorable to us, if that makes sense. Kind of a weird situation. And, and so because the terms are so favorable, even though it was a hostile acquisition, we wanted to get this closed. And I clearly wanted to get this closed. So we go in and, and, uh, and start the, the, the process or getting ready for the process. But the, the other party had, was nowhere to be seen. We're supposed to start by nine o'clock because we had to close at 259 because you know three o'clock the wire transfer had to be done because we were on the 90th day. Nine o'clock, they're not there. 9:30, still not there. And I'm just sitting there going, oh God, what's gonna happen next? And and 10:15, still not there. Finally at 11:20, they saunter in. And, and my counterpart um, from, the, from the other company um, casually sits down and, and pulls out a, a, a laptop and starts playing solitaire. At which point I felt, I felt hands grab my left arm. And, and, and I kind of looked down and I look up and it was one of the young attorneys. And he whispered in my ear, he says, don't take the bait. And apparently I was looking a little bit hostile at the time uh, with my body language. The, the, the attorney for this guy walks across the room, and, and, and if you ever wonder why uh, attorneys have that one big conference room, that huge table, uh, I can tell you what it's for. It's for closing days, because they got so much paperwork they got to do. So he goes all the way over to the other side of the room, picks up the phone, and, and all of a sudden it's clear he's talking to their bankers still working on finalizing the funding for this deal. I always have to get the evil banker into the story. And so, um, so, so at that point, I felt another pair of hands grab my other arm. And, and I felt myself being pulled backwards by these two guys into the little kitchen that was off the conference room. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty laid back guy, but apparently with everything that had been going on, um, it had totally set me off and they were worried what I might do at that point. So I'm being dragged back into this room and, and uh, and about an hour later, they come in and they say, it's, it, okay, we got it all figured out. They got the money. Everything's good. I go, okay, great. And he said, but now we only have about two hours left to get this closing done. And this is going to take at least six hours, at least. And, and, and I said, well, what the heck do we do in that case? Um, any attorneys in the room? So attorneys are, apparently have magical superpowers I never knew of because they handed us a document saying that we were going to stop time for 24 hours. 
I didn't know they could do that, but apparently they can. I, I imagine you know, him ripping his suit off, and there's Superman and his cape, and he flies around the earth backwards to stop the clock. But no, we just signed a piece of paper. Finally got closed, and, and I, I'd noticed there was a bottle of champagne in the back, but that never got opened, uh, although we did close. And, and so I went home and, and uh, came in the next morning, and we watched the, the, the fund transfers finally land into our bank. And, and I had kind of a weird feeling. I had this emptiness because you know, it was a hostile, hostile acquisition, so I, I was pretty sure I wouldn't have a job offer from these new owners. And thank goodness, we, it was a good exit, and so uh, it wasn't a financial worry for me. I just didn't know what the heck I was going to do with my life. So I started talking to a couple people, and within a few days, we had, we had been working on this other deal, of course. Um, um, I have shiny object syndrome, just like most entrepreneurs, and, and, and so I was, I was working on this deal, and, and I decided we're going to go all in on this. And, and we actually had pretty much most of the money lined up within about three or four days to do a healthcare informatics company. So I come down one morning, and, and my wife's down there, and I'm, I come down at the breakfast table, I said, I said, honey, guess what? I got it all figured out what I'm gonna do next. You know, and I'm still dealing with the fact that I can't see out of most of my right eye. And she goes, that's nice. Uh, um, what in the world are you thinking about doing? And she said, well, I, I said to her, well, um, we're going to do a healthcare informatics deal. I said, it's great. I got all the money lined up. We're not going to have to worry about funding. It's going to be great. We're going we're gonna to be one of the first companies to go into the whole world of medical records and all that kind of stuff. And, and she just smiled and nodded her head, and she goes, that's nice. She said, but you're in time out. I, I said, excuse me? She says, uh, you're in timeout for six months. She said, after six months, if this still looks like a good deal and you want to do it, I'll be behind you 100% and, and, and no questions asked. And, and she said, but for the next six months, you're in timeout. And, and I didn't quite know how to react to that. And, and so I tried to argue. I was like a kid. Oh, come on, Mom, really? Do I have to? And, and she was firm. Even, so, so I went out and played golf uh, twice a day, played 36 holes a day for about four or five days. Uh, my arms got really tired, and, and I realized I'm not that good of a golfer. And so I went back home. I said, what am I going to do? She goes, I have no idea, but you're in timeout. And that's all she'd say. So the first, the first few months, <laughs> um, I did what I'm doing right now. I paced, except it was much faster pace, and I was apparently doing this a lot and doing this a lot on my face. Um, my kids still make fun about that today. Um, whenever I get a little stressed, they both take their hands and run it down my face. Apparently, it was a common reaction. And, and, and I was just, I had this intensity that I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. I couldn't figure out why I was so anxious. And I kept going back to my wife, and she kept saying, no. She said, she pointed to the calendar. She goes, look, it's the date circled. Figure it out. And, and so I continued to pace. It's all I knew what to do. I had nothing else in my life. I mean, it, every waking moment for 10 years I had built this company, that was gone. I didn't know what I was going to do next. 
And so um, uh, this continued for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then finally, you know, you would think you'd remember the day. I don't remember the day, but I do remember that I started to have this really different kind of feeling. And the best way I can describe it is I felt like I was finally able to listen and hear and take in. And, and, and I noticed that, that I was getting better and I could see a little bit better out of my right eye, which uh, was still a concern. And, and I was sleeping better and, and I had a calmness to me. And my, my wife kept saying, she goes, you know, you, you got to trust me on this. She says, I need to get to know you again. And she said, you've got two kids in the next room who are too old for me to put that cardboard cut out at the, at the breakfast table anymore. You've got to be here for them. And, and she kept repeating that to me over and over. And, and all of a sudden, I started to listen to that, and I heard that. And, and then one day, she came to me, and she said, have you ever thought about going back into teaching? Now, I had taught um, in, the, in the early 80s. Um, I got my MBA in 1980 from the University of Kentucky, and uh, I got my MBA in finance and banking. And those of you who remember 1980, it was not a good year to go into finance and banking. We had mortgage rates of 16.5%. Uh, we had inflation that was around 15%. And, and high unemployment. It was a mess. And so nobody was hiring in that industry, which is why I stayed on at the University of Kentucky and got a doctorate. And, and taught for a few years, but, but not very long. I got bored with teaching. I wanted to go out and start companies. And so when the economy got better, I left teaching and started companies. And she, but my wife came to me. She said, have you ever thought about going back into teaching? She says, I think you were pretty good because you seemed really happy and the students seemed to like you. And have you ever thought about that? You probably have a lot to give those kids after all you've been through. I went, no, 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 no. I'm an entrepreneur. That's who I am. I can't go teaching. Come on. I mean, you know, the biggest stress they have in their life is how big their copying budget is for this semester to make tests. I said, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going into teaching. She went, okay, fine. About two weeks later, I came down to the breakfast table and and I said, honey, I got it all figured out. She said, what's that? I said, I'm going into teaching. And, and, uh, and, and I did. It was, it was that point in my life when I realized, and I didn't have the language to understand this, and it's something that I've, I've come to understand over the years since then. I had let myself become what I do. Every, every ounce of me, every crack and corner inside of me was an entrepreneur. There wasn't room for anything else. There wasn't room for dad. There wasn't room for husband. There wasn't room for friend. There wasn't room for um, uh, congregational member in, in the pew in the church. Uh, you know, I went through the motions of those things, but there was no room for that. I was a guy who, when I sat in church, was going through spreadsheets in my head about all the stuff I was going to do next. And when I was sitting at, at, a, at a choir concert with my son, listening to my son singing the choir, I was thinking about all the meetings I had the next day. That was me. And, and I, I realized that with that time out of six months, it allowed me to drain that out of me 
and it created room for me to start to fill it up with all those other things that I'm supposed to be. When we talk about the virtue of temperance, we talk about moderation, we talk about balance in life, we have to be careful about our language. Um, I'm not nuts about the word balance. I use it a lot because it's a, it's a word people understand. But, but balance kind of assumes sort of offsetting. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make up for this over here. Um, true temperance is really understanding a level of moderation where you have room for all those other things in your life. Now, sadly, I'm an ontraholic. Uh, it's in my blood. And, and so um, this is a struggle I, I have continued with for the rest of my life and the fact that, that I am constantly thinking of things I want to do next. But I've also come to recognize the, the beauty of having people in your lives who can pull you back and say, slow down and, and wait. I, I've described my wife as my Jiminy Cricket. You know, she's on my shoulder, and every once in a while she knows when to whisper in my ear. Now, I, I, know, I know it's still a problem, because even in academics, I've, I've let myself get carried away. You know, most of you are thinking, oh, academics, how hard is that, right? You know, probably work 20 hours a week, you get summers off. How hard could that be? And I will admit, there's a fair number of my colleagues who have maximized that aspect of the lifestyle. But not me because I'm always seeing th other things I want to do. There was one year where um, I was building the program at Belmont, and, and all of a sudden I was in the middle of writing three books at one time because they were great opportunities. I couldn't say no. It's like, oh, yes, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. And, and so I was creeping back into some of my bad habits. And, and, and it was that year at... Uh, on, on New Year's Eve, my wife, my Jiminy Cricket on my shoulder, handed me my New Year's resolution. And, and it said, you will only read books in 2010. We all need that in our lives. We all need people who can help keep us in check with these kinds of things, those of us who have this problem uh, with this particular virtue. Now, these cardinal virtues are critical because they are, they are called in, in, in theology the hinge virtues. There's lots of other virtues. There's lots of other things that we're told that we need to do to be good people. But if you look at what theologians have written all the way back to Thomas Aquinas, um, those four virtues, courage, justice, uh, prudence, temperance, those are the four that all the other virtues hinge on. And if you mess up on one of those, there's a whole cascading of other things that can happen in your life. And that's what happened with me. And so I've learned the importance of, of having that Jiminy Cricket on my shoulder. Now, uh, fortunately, my, my disease is, is one that does allow me to still consume um, entrepreneurship. And, and, and it's not like an alcoholic who can't ever drink again. Uh, I'm still able to dabble. But I didn't do a deal for 20 years. It took me that long to kind of really, and believe me, there was a whole lot of deals I wanted to do along the way. But I, I held back because I realized I had to come that far back in terms of, of balance in my life, of, of, of making sure that I was solid where I was. And, and a few years ago, and this is, this is one of those moments where I felt like everything worked. 
A few years ago, my kids, who are now in their 30s, those same two kids who didn't know me when I was an entrepreneur, they didn't know me. I didn't spend any time with them. Or if I did, I, wasn't, I, was, I was there, but I wasn't there. Um, they came to me uh, with my wife's blessing and said, let's start a company together, Dad. It would be fun. It would be fun. And so uh, the four of us about three years ago launched a little company. And, and, and it's really been a fun adventure so far. Um, it, it's, it, we've screwed up like we all do and, and, and made, had a couple false starts, but it's really starting to, to take off and, and, and work now. Um, my daughter and I are, are the most involved in the business. Um, my son has, uh, he has a lot of responsibilities with work and family, and so he's not able to be as involved. My wife is fairly active in it, and we've got a couple people else on the outside helping. And, and what makes me feel good about where I am is, is I know there's lots of things that we could chase with this business, but we've kind of redefined what success means for us. Um, my, my normal mode of maximize wealth and maximize uh, market share hasn't entered in my mind once. Uh, what success means for me now in this business, yeah, some cash would be nice. It would be great to, for my kids to have something that could, uh, it's going to take some time. It's a, one of those slow build kind of businesses, but it's going to be something that could create some nice cash flow to help pay for my grandkids to go to private schools and all the things I know that they're going to want to do. And, and, and it's going to allow my wife and I to um, uh, have a lot of fun in retirement in terms of travel and things like that. That's nice. But I would give all that up because the most important measure of success is, is are we having fun as a family? Is this something that we're excited to do? Is this something that we feel good about doing? Is this something that, that we enjoy working on together? And, and, and I can tell you that it is. And what a blessing it is to be over on the, on the edge of the cliff at the risk of losing uh, my, I'm sure, losing my marriage, although I didn't realize it because I wasn't paying attention, at the risk of losing any relationship with my kids, which I didn't realize at the time, but I'm sure it could have, that now I'm at the point where they actually not only want to hang out with me, but want to do a business together. So, so I tell you this story to, to, to stress the importance of, of really finding ways to integrate some of these things into, into your lives and your decisions, particularly those of you who are entrepreneurs. Because we don't have, you know, we don't have a job description. And that's, that's it, it's a, it, an amazingly liberating kind of a thing, but it's also a dangerous thing because there are no boundaries. And without boundaries, if we're not careful, we can expand into, into territories that can, that can be pretty destructive at some point if we're not careful. So, so um, I'm going to stop there. Um, it's a, I, I like to end stories with happy endings, and this one has a happy ending. Um, and and I'd, I'd welcome any questions, comments, reflections any of you would like to share.